Really excited for this show because, well, someone might tell me I'm a fool, but maybe more importantly, we can find out what people think of this system. So I have a offensive rating system that I use called points gained. The concept behind points gained is how a player does compared to what an average player would do with the same possession. So, in the case of someone like Steph Curry, who's the number one points gained player in the NBA, you take the amount of possession Steph Curry uses in a game, compare it to what the average player in the league would do, and Steph Curry comes out as the best, one of the best offensive players in the league. Actually, Giannis last year came out as the single most offensively impactful offensive player. But in the case of Steph Curry, Steph Curry comes out as plus. 3.4 on a given night. I have done this with every player projected based on their minutes played, what they would be in this upcoming season, and then graded every team's offense using points gained. What do we do about defense? We go to Kevin Pelton because he's way smarter than I am for defense. And Kevin Pelton has looked at the defensive metrics and we're using Kevin Pelton's defensive metrics to be able to explain every defensive team. Combine those and turn them into rankings. Ben Golliver of the Washington Post joins us to say you're crazy. That's your role, Ben, to say, ha, ah, interesting, or you're crazy. Let me tell you on this system. It's had some successes. It's had some fails. Last year, its fail was that it had the Pelicans as, an, as a top four team in the Western Conference. Obviously, that didn't happen. We don't know if that was because of all sorts of problems. It did have a huge success last year that it said both Toronto and Milwaukee we're going to be better than Boston, Philadelphia, and Indiana. So there's a, it goes a little bit each way on how this works, Ben. That sounds great. Now, one quick question off the top, and I'm sure some of the listeners have the question too. In terms of the minutes projection, how much did you factor into account health or, or track record of guys missing time? Exactly how did you calculate the uh, the minutes projection aspect? So Kevin Durant is not playing in this upcoming season. That projection is in there. Clay Thompson is projected is not projected to play this season, and that's worth remembering. Otherwise, players are projected to be healthy. Very good. All right, so let's start with uh, the biggest surprises in the system. And in the Eastern Conference, the biggest surprise is the Brooklyn Nets are picked third. As the number one offense in the Eastern Conference this year, what's your? You're crazy. I think that's my my. You said my job was to call you crazy. Yes. You're crazy. I, I don't see any situation where Brooklyn's going to have a better offense than a team like Milwaukee. Uh, you mentioned Giannis grading very well uh, with your system last year. You look at the pieces around him. Just about all those pieces are back. The important ones for him to flourish, I think, are back. Uh, of course, I'd love them to have Malcolm Brogdon still in the mix, but. They've got plenty of shooting. I expect his health to be solid. I don't think anyone in the Eastern Conference is going to be able to stop him outside of maybe Philadelphia. So I think that's a little bit ambitious from the offensive uh, efficiency side. In terms of the record, though, I'm not sure that part is nuts because uh, this is sort of how I feel, and it might be a little dismissive. I don't think you get a trophy for finishing third in the Eastern Conference this year. I mean, to me, it's a a two-team race. Philadelphia and Milwaukee are really the only teams that matter. You can throw Brooklyn into that mix uh, for the third seed if you want to. I would say Toronto should still be in the mix. Maybe don't count Indiana out. Uh, There's a few other teams I could see. Boston, 
you know, are going to be in that same conversation. But to me, you know, playing for third in that conference this year, it's not the world's biggest achievement. Let's dig into the Nets for a second, because when I first had that happen, I had the same reaction. But I'll tell you what, it's not close. They're not the number one offensive team by a little. They're the number one offensive team by a lot. And one of the biggest things is that for all of D'Angelo Russell's great last-minute plays and all of his highlights and all the things he did this year, he was a negative 1.1 points gained player. So that's a lot. Whereas Kyrie Irving is a plus 1.2. That's the We just talked about Steph Curry at 3.7 being the best in the league. That's the base. The difference between these two guys is 2.3. There's only four, five, six players in the league that are actually better than that. The other thing that's interesting about the Brooklyn Nets that is super important in my system, they have only one player that's a negative offensive player, and that is uh, Karis LeVert, who I think all of us anticipate being better than he was a year ago. But this team has a marquee go-to scorer in Kyrie Irving, and then everybody else on that team is above average. It's not close, actually. They come out way above everyone else. I I really think that we've all just decided that Brooklyn, because Durant is not ready yet and is a year away, and we just decided they're a year away, I don't think that's true. I actually think they're probably more ready than anyone realizes and that that offensive makeup of that team with that grittiness they had a year ago is much better than people realize. Yeah, there's a couple things in there I definitely agree with. First of all, the jump from D'Angelo Russell to Kyrie Irving, I don't think that can be overstated. I mean, to me, Russell, you know, he was an all-star in name but not really an impact last year. Uh, you know, when, when I'm judging him, I think a lot of people focus maybe on the Boston side of the point guard shuffle there, you know, trying to make arguments like, oh, you know, Kemba Walker is not that much worse than Kyrie Irving. You know, they, they can still have a good offense. I do think people maybe, uh, you know, understated the fact that, you know, Kyrie Irving is significantly better than D'Angelo Russell. I think he's a more proven player. I think he's a more uh, explosive player offensively. Uh, he puts a lot more pressure on the defenses. He gets more efficient shots, better looks, all of it. Um, so I agree with that part. I also think your point on, you know, the, the Nets sort of being in the shadow of the 2021 Nets, like this idea that Kevin Durant, since he's not there, they don't matter. Um, I think that's a pretty powerful psychological weapon. You know, if I was Kenny Atkinson, I'd be playing that card every single day during training camp saying like, you know, everybody's writing us off. Uh, you know, we're playing with house money this year. Let's go out there and prove them wrong. No pressure. I mean, I would certainly be uh, channeling those same things if I was a player like Kyrie Irving after a tough year last year. And also a guy like LeVert, who you're mentioning, who's coming back healthy and, you know, is probably lining up, uh, you know, to have uh, what we would expect to be a career year. I'm still just a little bit dubious that, uh, you know, these pieces, especially with Kyrie, can he stay healthy? Can he be a consistent force who leads an efficient offense year after, uh, you know, month after month, game after game? Uh, you know, we never really saw that uh, to the degree that we had hoped for in Boston. That really wasn't his role in Cleveland. And so I, I do think that's still a little bit of an open question. Uh, if he misses his typical 10 to 15 games uh, this season, like he does most seasons, I think they're going to be in a, a tough spot. Although I do like the fact they've got Dinwiddie who can kind of step in and fill that void as well. All right, so let's be clear on one thing. Milwaukee is still the number one seed, but Brooklyn is the surprise in there coming in uh, overall ranked as the third seed. And maybe this is what's most interesting to me about all of this. It's with a virtual tie with a bunch of other teams. And that's the same thing that happened in the East last year. That when I put these rankings together, it surprised me how little 
margin there was between Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Toronto, Boston, uh, uh, Indiana, those five teams. Milwaukee's clearly the number one seed still because they're so much better than everyone else defensively. But the rest of these Eastern Conference teams are just melded together. The number two seed is Boston. The number three seed is Brooklyn with a tie with Philadelphia, Toronto, Miami, and Indiana. They all came out virtually the exact same. Well, that, that part is fascinating to me. Now, why do you think that your systems uh, or this combined system with you and Kevin Pelton is maybe lower on Philadelphia than conventional wisdom? Because you know, I'll be honest, when I'm looking at the pictures coming out of media day and they have their big five all lined up, you know, I'm thinking this team's ready. You know, they're probably thinking, you know, title. They're probably thinking, uh, you know, finals trip in June. Uh, you know, I think they've got uh, the, the prospect to be, you know, a top two, top three defense in the league. Uh, they've got superstar talent, headliners. Uh, I thought they had a very creative and kind of surprising summer, which I didn't see coming. But it sounds like your system's slightly lower on them than maybe the average human viewer might be. So interestingly, for all of our talk of how great Philadelphia is defensively, they don't come out as great defensively in Pelton's system as they do in some of our other systems. They come out as the 11th best defensive system overall for Pelton, and I believe the 7th best defensive team in the Eastern Conference. So that may be the biggest surprise, because for my system, which is purely offensive, they are actually the 3rd best offensive team, significantly behind Brooklyn and Milwaukee, but they are the 3rd best offensive team, followed by Boston, who's the 4th best offensive team, followed by Indiana, who's the 5th best offensive team, and then surprisingly, Atlanta, is the next best offensive team in the group. Yeah, so when I look at that, I mean, the, the magic of the Horford edition for them is that if MB does miss 20 games, which is, you know, the way typically in past seasons that their defense winds up kind of coming back to earth, right? Because he's been one of these guys who just has this massive, you know, plus defensive impact. And when he's been out, they look like a totally different team. They change their style up. They kind of hand the keys to Ben Simmons, and they, they play this whole different way, right? I think the magic of the Horford addition is that you can just kind of plug him in there and still be, uh, if not an elite defense, then it's still a very, very good defense in the minutes where Embiid's either injured or not playing. So to me, I think the system is underrating their defensive potential. I do think their offensive potential is being properly rated there. And so to me, uh, I think you guys are sleeping on Philadelphia just a little bit. Miami's the interesting one that came out as Pelton's number one defensive team with Bam out of Bayou placing Hassan Whiteside. And if you get to be that elite defensively, you you know there are not a lot of top five defensive teams that didn't win a lot of games in the NBA. And so that makes Miami with a very average offense, a team that comes out and maybe even a below average offense that looks like a 45 to 47 win team probably. And that gets you, according to this system, kind of in that middle mix there. Yeah, and I think they're feeling like uh, they could be a three seed in Miami too. You know, I just think it's wide open. They feel like they could be in that mix. I think we're looking at kind of a, a fascinating standoff with uh, Bam Adebayo and then the Hassan Whiteside thing from Portland because I think we're starting to get hype on on uh, you know that realignment from both sides. Like Portland's just like tickled to death that they've got Hassan Whiteside to plug in. Uh, you know, during the Yusuf Nurkic injury absence, you know, Damian Lillard, C.J. McCollum are hyping him up. Uh, Hassan Whiteside's hyping up the fact that he finally gets to play with shooters. It's a contract year. He's supposed to be motivated. So there's a lot of, like, you know, online momentum generating that way. And I think if you're Miami, after watching, you know, Whiteside's, uh, you know, plus-minus impacts over the years, maybe some, you know, waning uh, commitment issues at times, uh, you know, just some uh, offensive fit problems uh, over the years, and just uh, I think it just ran its course. 
I think Miami has every reason to be super excited about what Bam can bring to the table in an expanded role and, and as a full-time starter getting big minutes and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, to me, that's definitely one to kind of circle and watch because I think how that plays out, you know, you know both sides, could, it could wind up being a win-win. Uh, there, there's no question, but uh, it's just one to circle. It, so to finalize the Eastern Conference before we move over some surprises in the West and overall picture, Milwaukee clearly the one, and then just a, ma- a mosh pit. Boston is two, but from that point, Brooklyn, Philadelphia pretty even. Miami, Indiana, Toronto pretty even. will be interesting to see if that actually plays out, leaving the eighth and final spot. We'll touch on that just to, for a moment when we come back on who that is in the East, and then look at uh, that Hassan Whiteside situation in Portland. It is Ben Golliver, Washington Post, points gain prediction system, poking holes in it here on Locked on NBA. So just to wrap up the Eastern Conference, Orlando 8, Chicago 9, Atlanta jumping to 10 ahead of Detroit. Surprise there? Ooh, that's exciting. I, I want to be in on Atlanta. I'm still worried that it's a year too early, and I think sometimes the basketball hipsters on, on Twitter, they fall in love with these young teams. And to me, like Atlanta's the team that just jumps off because Trey Young, just such a tantalizing playmaker. Uh, they've got a nice young core kind of building there, but they are so, so young. They dropped a lot of important guys who played big minutes for them last year. Um, and so I think, to me, it could be one where they just get a little bit ahead of themselves. But if they finish 10th, uh, that wouldn't necessarily surprise me. I think Detroit's one of the teams that's the hardest pro- to project in the league because we saw what they could be uh, with Blake Griffin fully healthy last year, you know, kind of playing out of his mind. I mean, an underrated statistical season across the league. Um, you know, he definitely got overlooked. But how often does he put you know two seasons like that together back to back? What do they look like if he's not having that type of impact? Um, you know, I wasn't crazy about their other offseason moves around him. I think there's a lot of fit issues up and down that roster, regardless. So to me, you know, you could convince me that they could be the sixth seed. You could convince me that they're going to be the twelfth or thirteenth seed. Uh, it's just you know they're all over the map like that. We'll turn to the Western Conference. By the way, with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. So go to Blinkist.com slash locked on. Try it for free for seven days and save 25% on your new subscription. Two surprises in the West, and you touched on one of them. Portland came out terribly. I was really stunned because Mo Harkless and Al Farouk Aminu are two of the least good shooters in the league. But this math, the offensive numbers on their new players are not good. Kent Bazemore is a negative offensive player. Anthony Simons has is a still a negative. Mario Hazonia is a negative. Anthony Tolliver's even. I don't know if they think Scalabassier is going to play at all, but he's a negative. C.J. McCollum actually last year wasn't that great. Rodney Hood's a negative offensive player. They came out as the 13th ranked offensive team in the Western Conference for a team that a year ago was the one of the top three offensive teams after January 1st. I was stunned by it. I'd love to go change it because I don't think it resonates to me. But when something comes out that dramatic in the numbers, it does jump to me, Ben, to say, what maybe are we missing about what's been constructed here? Well, let me ask you, do you guys, you, you analytics guys have like meetings where you get together and you intentionally underrate the Blazers to try to like motivate them or try to like, you know, spur them on to greatness? Because it feels like this happens year after year after year. These guys, I mean, they're always looking for something to put on their shoulder up in Portland. You know, I'm from there and, you know, the we're underrated card gets played a lot up there. But I think this is a case where you know, it applies. I mean, there's no way 
barring a Damian Lillard, you know, significant injury, that their offense is going to be that bad. Um, I think he's elevated him, himself to the point where he's a top 10 player in the league right now. I think he's, you know, an above average offense by himself right now. I didn't like a lot of the moves that they made. And I think not only did they bring in some minus offensive players, but they also lost some guys who played a lot of minutes for them um, who maybe weren't like big time pluses, uh, but who they're really going to miss, you know, like Mo Harkless, Alfred Camino, many of those guys sort of wore out their welcome by the end of their stays in Portland because of some playoff frustrations and, and maybe they weren't dynamic enough on the wings there. But I still think there's going to be a lot of Blazers fans who look at those guys and say, man, we wish we could get those guys back in this, uh, you know, upcoming season. But uh, if you give me Damon CJ, I'm going to give you a, a top 15 offense, you know, basically no matter what league wide. Uh, I think you guys are underrating them. So I think that th- maybe this is a key point to the system that I run that is, I think, the importance of it. And actually what I do fundamentally believe in, we'll see whether this Portland thing comes out to be true, that when you take Seth Curry, who's slightly above average, and you take Jake Lyman, who's slightly above average, and you take Ennis Cantor, who's actually well above average, and you take Al Farouk, who is average, and you take Mo Harkless, who is average, all of that, there's great value to that. And to me, that's why they were the number one offensive team in the league last year is because they, other than Evan Turner, they had almost no one on their team that was negative possession, uh, a below average possession user. And now they have a bunch of them. And you very, very quickly negate the greatness of someone like Damian Lillard when Mario Hazonia's minus 0.8 and Anthony Simons minus 0.5 and Kent Bazemore minus 1.2. I can, even though they're using less possessions, Ben, I combine those guys. It's minus 2.3. Dame is great. He's only 1.2 positive. So you've suddenly completely negated Dame, and that's how you end up with a negative team. And all those previous players, who every single one of those guys they're replacing were average. They weren't negating anyone. And that's why this team came out so badly. And I actually think there's a real concern for them. Okay, what about a halo effect here where, you know, Damian's presence is going to be helping make some of those guys who are limited players in Portland, uh, you know, better than they might look just like by the raw numbers, for example. Like, you know, do you think a player like Alfred Camino is going to have the same offensive impact in a situation like Orlando as he did getting to play with Damian Lillard? Um, I mean, to me, I think that the, the stretch of his three-point shooting, the threat that he possesses, you know, to defenses every time he comes up the court, uh, you know, it's not just an individual impact. I think it, it helps all of his teammates. I mean, I didn't think the Canner signing for them last year was going to work out at all. And as you mentioned, I mean, it, it paid huge dividends during the regular season, and they turned him into a, a really productive player. I give a lot of the credit for that to a guy like Damian Lillard and, and also to Terry Stotts' creativity as well. So I'm wondering if, I guess, to boil this down, I'm wondering if some of these new players who are coming in uh, will look better than they might appear at first glance because they get to play with a player like Damian Lillard. That would be the ultimate statement that Damian Lillard has become a top 10 player in the NBA because very, very surprisingly fewer people have that halo effect than, than get credit for it. So if he, Chris Paul's had it, LeBron's had it, if Dame gets to that point, that is a huge statement of how great a player he's become. I think he's at a really fascinating point in his career. I mean, I think Steph Curry is definitely better than him. I think James Harden is definitely better than him, but he's better than Westbrook. You know, we saw it in the playoffs. I think he's better than Chris Paul at this point of his career. I think he's better than Kyrie Irving at this point of his career. And you know, we're looking at other lead guards, guys who are playing that point guard position, uh, whether in name or sort of de facto. I mean, I think he's, you know, basically top three at this point, right? Switching to a different team and a little bit equal of a surprise is Phoenix comes out okay. 
Phoenix actually comes out despite being one of the worst defensive teams in Kevin Pelton's defensive rankings. They come out as offensively uh, being the seventh best offensive team in the Western Conference, so middle of the pack, and suddenly come out as possibly, you know, pretty far, probably a pretty good slip to get there, but in a little actually right above and not terrible anymore. That that was another surprise to me, but it starts to make sense when you add Kelly Oubre is an average offensive player. Dario Saric is an average offensive player. Aaron Baines is an average offensive player. Frank Kaminsky, and think of who was playing those. Even Ricky Rubio is not great. Uh, that was Ellie Okubo, right? That was Rashawn Holmes. I mean, think of the, how poor the players are that they've replaced. They actually have legitimate NBA rotation players, which they did not have before. Yeah, no, I don't know if you're going to give credit for Phoenix for, like, you know, plunging expectations so far previously in uh, past seasons that, like, average all of a sudden, uh, you know, starts to sound amazing. But I do think that they could have a little bit of a combination effect where you are bringing in sort of replacement-level guys in the spots that were, you know, you know, fringe NBA or G League-level talents in previous years. And then also you're hoping, I'm sure, for some internal improvement uh, from their two main guys, Booker and Aiden, and I would expect both those guys to take steps forward uh, on offense this year just because they're playing with, with better players. That doesn't mean they're going to have bigger or you know more voluminous stats, uh, but they should be more efficient. Uh, their lives should be easier. They should be more consistent. And then obviously in Booker's case, he should be healthier too, we would expect. So um, I'm not calling that one crazy, but I, I do want to kind of see it before I believe it. I am interested on the defensive side, though, because – to me, that's the question with Booker that he's he's staring down constantly. I think it's still a question with Aiton. Um, I think Rubio clearly that's a nice fit for them you know, to be able to to plug in a guy like that. Uh, you know, given some of the other point guard options who were available to them, I think that worked out you know fairly well for them. Um, but you know, what are they looking like on the defensive end? Because will that offensive improvement even matter in the Western Conference if they're still you know just terrible defensively? Indochino is the world's largest made-to-measure men's brand, so start your style upgrade now with $30 off your total purchase of $3.99 or more at Indochino.com when entering Locked On at checkout. Who's top of the West? And does my largest West surprise make sense? We continue with Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. Unquestionably, the biggest surprise somewhat because Kevin Pelton has them as being an elite level defensive team is the new Orleans Pelicans who come out in my offensive system as the sixth best offensive team in the Western conference. One of the better above average offensive teams overall about 11th or 12th overall. And in Kevin Pelton's system, they come out as one of the best defensive teams in the league. The Pelicans come out, I believe as the fourth or fifth best defensive team in the league. And thus it gets them right on the edge of possibly in the mix of the best Western conference teams. What's your thought on that one? And then I'll try to explain it statistically. Well, I would, yeah, my main thought is, please, you know, lay this out for me. I know they've got some guys who tend to favor pretty well by the advanced numbers. You know, Drew Holiday, uh, Derek Favors plugging in. I mean, those guys, you know, consistently have done, you know, they probably get more attention from the stat nerds uh, and more love from the stat nerds over the years than they get from uh, the average casual fan. Um, to me, though, I'm not ready to say that they're going to necessarily be a playoff team, which is what it sounds like this, this is projecting. Um, I do think it would be one of the absolutely funniest stories in the league if they were to have a better regular season record than the Lakers somehow, you know, given 
all the hand-wringing about that trade and how it played out and the tampering allegation emails and all this other stuff. I mean, if they were able to outperform the Lakers just sort of by being uh, the little engine that could, chugging along, being consistent, uh, you know, being maybe not spectacular or top-heavy, but just, you know, grinding out victories with, with solid defense and, uh, you know, occasional doses of highlight plays from Zion and everything else, I think that would be just a hilarious story. I'm not totally sure I could see that happening, though. So this really gets back to kind of the same thing we talked about earlier, the lack of significant amount of negative players. Drew Holiday, average use of scoring opportunity possessions. Zion Williamson projects to be a little above average. Brandon Ingram, right at average. Uh, Josh Hart, right at average. Jalil Okafor, right at average. Kendrick Williams, right at average. Each one more, right at... It's a collection of average offensive players with Derek Favors and J.J. Redick being well above average in their efficiency use and Lonzo Ball being below and a defensive team that frankly does seem like it could be really good. Drew Holiday, Derek Favors, Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, Josh Hart, that should be a pretty good defensive team. Weak in some of the wing depth, it could be a problem, particularly if Lonzo can't stay healthy, but at least, to me, it gets a little interesting, um, particularly in some sense because one of the things we get here is that the Rockets, the Lakers, the Pelicans, all Kate and the Warriors all bundled up very tightly in this ranking system. Yeah, it's... It's interesting because the Pelicans have been the team that have never had depth year after year after year, right? That was the story. And now, like, their entire identity basically changed with that trade where, you know, when you're doing, what, like a three or four for one type trade, you're going to have, you know, better depth, maybe not the the same, you know, star headliner that you had, but you're going to have the advantages that come with uh, all those extra pieces. I think my biggest question for them, I'm with you, I think they should be a good defensive team. Uh, They have a lot of really good, talented individual defenders, but every single guy you mentioned to me is a is a team first type of player. Lonzo, Ingram, Holiday, Zion, Favors. Not a single one of those guys is selfish. Not a single one of those guys is putting himself before the team. Um, it didn't happen in LA with the guys who are coming over. And Holiday has been a team guy his whole career. Zion, that's probably my favorite characteristic about him, uh, is how committed he is to the team concept. And that's been Favors' reputation for his entire career, too. So I think that they're going to be very solid on the defensive end. Uh, offensively, the fit questions is what jumps out to me. I, I worry about the spacing. Uh, I worry about how Zion kind of figures out, you know, what's his ideal offensive role. I still want to see, you know, a lot of improvement from Brandon Ingram. He's a guy offensively where, uh, you know, the numbers, at least in terms of impact, sometimes weren't always there. I think he really thrives when he's in a spaced-out environment. I'm not sure they're going to be able to get, you know, as much spacing as they need to help him. And then Lonzo is, is obviously an open question, an unbelievable passing instincts, uh, you know, he's, he's reworked his shot, as I'm sure everybody's seen. But, you know, to me, an open question on what kind of an offensive contributor he could be, uh, you know, in a new environment with new teammates and, and everything else. So, uh, you know, I think that they have a chance to exceed expectations. I like that the systems are so high on them because it does, you know, bring a new wrinkle into, uh, you know, a team that underwent a lot of changes this summer. Uh, I'm just not ready to quite go all in on them just yet. One of the things this system has done over the last few years, Ben, that's been interesting is signified teams that I thought would have chemistry problems. So, for example, when Minnesota put Jeff Teague, Jimmy Butler, Anthony Wiggins, Carl Anthony Towns, Taj Gibson, all of a sudden there was like 135 possessions that had to be used in a game. Well, that doesn't work. Last year, Boston, when you took the playoff usage compared to the career usage of the guys that weren't playing the playoffs, you got to the same thing. Interestingly, this year, nobody really peaked out. The highest were the Lakers and the Clippers, who seemed kind of high. Dallas, actually 
actually has a little bit of an excessive amount of possessions. Nobody really peeked out. Nobody says to me like, ooh, major chemistry problem. The one that's most interesting is that Golden State doesn't have enough possessions. And yet, and so what's really interesting to me is Steph Curry used 21 scoring opportunities a night last year. D'Angelo Russell used 21. Everybody else on that team used eight or fewer, other, in, assuming Clay doesn't play. They, who, if Steph Curry suddenly jumps to 26, 27, that team becomes great, like off the charts, great. Because he's that fabulous offensively. But if you can shut him down because there aren't other possession users there, it'll be interesting. The Warriors came out better on my numbers without Clay Thompson than I thought they were going to. Yeah, so I'm, I'm interested there because it goes back a little bit to what we were discussing with Portland, where I imagine they have a lot of individual guys who are minus offensive players, right? I mean, some of these players who are coming in from their second unit and their wings. They have got to be grading out pretty poorly, correct? And D'Angelo Russell grades out very poorly. Yeah, Glenn Robinson uh, poorly, Alec Burks poorly, Omari Spellman poorly. Steph's just so great on his Steph's, – Steph's better than any of us realize. Well, so I think what we're learning here from the analytics is that this could be a team that could be really, really fun to watch because if we get the Superman season from Steph where he, he understands that, look, like – He's not really, you know, dealing with the super team that he's been accustomed to these last couple of years. That he's saved up his energy maybe over these last couple of years a little bit, and he decides to go out there, you know, try to compete for a scoring title, put more on his own shoulders. I mean, I don't think that you can chop the ball out of his hands and beat the Warriors. Like, I don't think there's a real a way to say, oh, we're going to take away Steph Curry. I think we saw it in the finals. I mean, even when he was losing teammates left and right, he was still able to create really quality shots for himself uh, yeah, basically any time he wanted. I thought Toronto did a very good job on him. I'm not trying to knock them. I just think he's kind of unanswerable, unsolvable. And, and so to me, uh, I think uh, I, I'm not picturing him taking his foot off the gas. Let's put it that way. I think he's going to come out. Uh, he's been talking a lot about how he, they, they think they're still contenders. They're still in the mix and all that stuff. I think he's going to be putting a lot on his shoulders. I love the pairing with him and Draymond. I think that sets up a lot of stuff for limited offensive players. And they've already dealt with some health issues early in training camp with some of their big guys. And I think as those add up, it just puts more and more on Steph's platter. And I think that's kind of the best-case scenario for Golden State, frankly. The number one seed was a tie between the number one offensive team in the NBA, the uh, L.A. Clippers. They actually tied right kind of – uh, right, yeah, they were the number one offense team in the NBA, the LA Clippers, and then their defense, depending on how many games Kawhi and Paul changed, moved. And the Utah Jazz, who came out as the uh, overall in Kevin Pelton's defensive system, still had the Jazz as the third best defensive team in the NBA, and had and the offensive system has the fifth best offensive team in the NBA. You buying that? Uh, definitely on defense. I mean, I don't see why not. I think, you know, when you've got Gobert, his track record's so long at this point for leading regular season defenses, I think you'd be kind of a fool to, to uh, you know, underrate uh, their potential on that end. Um, I'm curious, why is L.A.'s offense, the Clippers' offense, rated so highly? I mean, clearly Kawhi's an incredible isolation player. Paul George coming off career year. Uh, Lou Williams, sixth man of the year. I mean, they've got some individual talent. Um is it is it the depth factor again? Kind of just a lot of positive players adding up here because I still want to see them prove it on that end. Like I want to see the chemistry develop. I want to make sure they've got enough ball handling guys in their starting lineup. I want to make sure that Paul George and, and Kawhi Leonard can strike the right balance between each other. 
I'm not totally sold they're going to be the best offense in the league. So just to give you a little, make sure that this is clear, let me do that. In regards to points gained and the whole system that we're talking about, to be uh, anyone that is a plus, you know, Steph Curry as we in Giannis were the best. Steph Curry and Giannis were the best in the league, three point six. Harden three point three. So there's only three players in the league over three, right? There's only about eleven players in the league that are two or better. And the Clippers have two of them. Interestingly, one of them is Montrez Harrell. He's that efficient and has that big an impact offensively. We undervalue these guys that get a lot of dunks in a game, but he's one of those guys and has that impact. It's frankly what Rudy Gobert does for the Utah Jazz. So you have Kawhi Leonard that's a plus two. You have uh, a plus two in Montrez Harrell. You have Paul George, who's a plus one. That gets a lot of it done, and then you really have almost no negative players on that whole roster. Jerome Robinson, maybe, who will barely, if at all, play. Rodney Magruder, maybe, but he's pretty close to average. He's a minus .3. Lou Williams is actually right at average. But every other player on that team is an above-average possession user, and that's so vital. So if you get the ball out of Kawhi's hands, you get the ball out of Paul George's hands, and it gets to one of these other guys... You're just, they're, they're not hurting you at all. Whereas what I'm saying about Portland is you get the ball out of Dame's hands and it's a negative possession. And that's what I, the number system sees killing Portland and vaulting a team like the Clippers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the Clippers are going to be really, really good. Um, I, the, the thing on Trez is fascinating. I mean, to me, I think he might have had a really good case last year for six man of the year. It's tough when you're going against Lou Will. Maybe he's a little bit flashier and, it has more attention, but he was phenomenal last season. I think he's in a contract this year, too. He's the type of, type of guy who just works out 12 months a year, completely addicted to basketball. Uh, sounds like he's coming into the season fired up just from his media day comments. I think he's going to play a lot of really important minutes for them, not only offensively, but I think defensively, too, because I think they envision him sort of being like their Draymond Green. Now, I'm curious because it sounds like Utah did very, very well in this system. How about Denver? Because I think Denver needs to be in this discussion of like the West's best teams. Uh, it sounds like maybe they're a little bit lower. Was it on offense? Was it on defense? What was going on with the Nuggets? So I 100% agree with you on this, and I don't quite understand why, other than Gary Harris really didn't have a very good year last year, and so he projects kind of in between the not his... If Gary Harris has his two years ago number, I think they vault up. Um, but I'm surprised by a little bit. Really, Jamal Murray just uses a tremendous amount of possessions and is still below average. And how he uses him. Gary Harris uses a tremendous amount and wasn't very good last year because of his injuries. So they don't project well, and I think it's wrong. I honestly think, and Will Barton's a below average offensive possession user. So you have three of their top five possession users being below average, and it's hard to make up for that. I just think, but I think if you get right down to it, Gary Harris won't be. And so I think the system's wrong on Denver. I think Gary Harris will probably be a little bit better. I think Barton coming off his injury issues should be, you know, meaningfully better than he was last year. And I think I might just be blind to Jamal Murray's flaws, but I think he's going to have a nice year, another a step forward year for him as well individually. So, um, you know, I, I think Denver deserves to be in this upper tier of the Western Conference conversation, even though, you know, they're kind of like uh, classically positioned to be overlooked by everybody. By the way, one interesting one on the projection system on Utah is that Donovan Mitchell still comes out negative. So that if Donovan Mitchell takes the year two to year three jump and gets more efficient, then this team suddenly is even better than they project to be. And they project really well, partially because Jeff Green is now trending in the right direction, which is something that didn't used to happen. Um, Boyan Bogdanovich had probably, you know, had a really remarkable year. And Rudy Gobert 
actually it's shooting about 67% has a stunningly positive impact offensively. Um, so D- Utah's interesting because Donovan actually still comes out as a negative player, even more so than Jamal Murray. Those two teams might be, their future might base, be based on which of those two players gets efficient this year. Yeah, and when I'm looking at, you know, around the league, all so much talk is about the big twos, right? The Clippers big two, Lakers big two, and so on and so forth. But I'm really looking for, like, the offenses that have five guys who seem like they really fit together because there's so much player movement. Uh, you can talk me into the Clippers, you know, finding that fit, which, you know, your numbers seem to believe that it's definitely going to be there. I'm not sure the Lakers are going to be able to find that fit. But if I look at Utah's, you know, starting five, it looks great on paper, and I'm not like I don't really know how it's not going to work. You know what I mean? Like with the with the Conley addition being basically exactly what they needed with Gobert, you know exactly what you're getting from him. He knows exactly what he's capable of doing. Their forwards, uh, you know, seem like very clean fits, and then you could project some, you know, at least some progress from Mitchell, even if it's not just crazy progress. Uh, it's not like he's going to be worse than he was last year. I mean, to me, uh, again, you've got five guys who are bought into the team concept. You've got a great coach who's very creative and has shown the ability to adjust to his talent over the years. I think they should be very good on offense. To conclude, the West Clippers Utah marked as one Lakers at three with Pelicans, Warriors, Rockets, Denver kind of all together. So that three through seven mix. And then we didn't talk about it. I don't think it's realistic numbers wise. It works. Reality. It doesn't is Oklahoma City actually came at eight Uh, and then Phoenix. San Antonio, Dallas, Sacramento, then Portland, and then Minnesota, poor Minnesota wow. and Memphis. So uh, we'll see. It's all out there. You can all laugh at me when it's over. Ben's already done so. Um, but that's, you know, obviously there's flaws in it, but that's just a purely n- combining two different number systems into some projections, and we'll see whether or not we look back and say, wow, the Pelicans are better, or Brooklyn is better, or wow, Portland's struggling more than we thought, or, you know, whatever it might be that, this, that we will look back on and say maybe the numbers told us, or maybe we'll look back and say we'll never do this show ever again. <laughs> Uh, we're not going to say that. I I think these numbers usually help guide and and find some interesting things. Can I ask one final question for you? Why, why are the the number system so high on the Lakers? Because, you know, you're, you're describing as we're going through a lot of these teams, the depth being so vital and, you know, just being at the Lakers opening training camp. uh, I see two very, very good players on that court. Uh, The other guys, I got some questions about what are the numbers said? So it's interesting. If you and I are talking, one of the things I've been talking to people about is how much better truly are LeBron James and Anthony Davis than Steph, da- Steph Curry and Draymond Green? And then supporting cast, how much better really is the Lakers than the Warriors? Like that's kind of, I'm with you. I'm actually kind of, that's one of my talking points. I've been talking with a bunch of NBA people about recently, and it's a little bit of a stretch, but there's something to that concept. So what you're saying, but Anthony Davis is great. LeBron James is great. Danny Green is super positive offensively so is JaVel McGee actually the negative players are Rajon Rondo Kyle Kuzma's below average but not dramatically so and the rest of their crew kind of comes in average but that so many of their possessions are taken by LeBron and Anthony Davis with a really positive Danny Green that they come out well offensively yeah uh, I can see them being very good if everything breaks right I guess one of my big concerns for the Lakers is if anything goes wrong here right uh, if one of those two guys misses a stretch of 10 games or, or whatever it might be uh, their formula to me just changes. And, you know, that was kind of one of my big takeaways from this first week of media days. I'm not completely sold yet that the Lakers are going to be real contenders. You know, I think that they got the offseason hype. Of course, they won the headlines by making that Anthony Davis trade. But, uh, you know, I'm still skeptical of basically 3 through 15 on that roster. And I guess we'll see what what happens. 
Ben Golliver, we appreciate the time doing a little analytics, counter analytics from a guy who actually likes analytics. Read Ben Golliver's Washington Post. Grab his newsletter. It's super fun to get a great overview of what's going on in the NBA and some interesting links to good articles as well. Go to Washington Post and subscribe to Ben's NBA email newsletter into your email account. Locked on NBA, Anthony and Adam will be with you tomorrow. This has been Locked on NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.